0: You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Blocky.
1: I wonder if I wouldn't have been religious had I not been at a really, really vulnerable place just with things that were going on with my family and in my own personal life when I was like a young teenager and finding a community of people that were like a little bit older than me that were in this youth group attached to some church that my friend went to. I literally showed up on the first day and I was like, well, if God's real, then why is there war? My name is Julian Baker. I released an album in February 2021 on Matador Records called Little Oblivions. And this is it. Black out on a weekday
2: Is there something that I'm trying to avoid Start asking for forgiveness in advance All the future things I will destroy
0: Julian Baker was barely 20 when she came to prominence with Sprained Ankle, her lacerating debut that chronicled her self-doubt and personal failings while conversely praising God. I was such a weird
1: brand of Christian. Me and like a handful of my youth group friends got hip to the Sean Claiborne, Jesus for President, anarcho-Christian thing.
0: Claiborne is a Christian activist who co-wrote the book, The Irresistible Revolution. He talks about how the church in America has become too cozy with the state. Jesus for President is a manifesto he wrote advocating for a socially conscious Christianity.
1: Like listened to a whole bunch of cornerstone bands, and I thought I was going to try to be an OG, no possessions, Franciscan friar style. And then I became a touring musician because that was the closest thing.
0: In 2018, Julian, who had been sober for several years, found herself day drinking. The following year, she cancelled all her shows and took a step back from the limelight. Gradually, she started writing again. These songs would eventually become her album, Little Oblivions. Much of what is written about Julian hangs heavy with her struggles with depression, addiction and trying to square her faith with her queerness – So we begin by asking her about happier times in her childhood, growing up in Bartlett, a town not far from Memphis in Tennessee. What was like a a moment for you in your childhood that just makes you happy?
1: My friend Tori, who I grew up one neighborhood over, would walk back and forth to her house or we would meet at the gas station and get slushies and stuff. She was older than me. She was the first person to get a car and she would drive my friends and I around and we would listen to little, like, mix CDs of whatever we saw on the Hot Topic t-shirt wall or on Groove Shark or SoundCloud that we would steal off the internet. Sorry, I did it. (laughs) And put on a, a little CD and we would drive around. And I remember, like, being in the back bed of the truck going down highway 70 in bartlett for the first time having the feeling of like you should try extra hard to remember how you feel right now it's like overly nostalgic but it truly was like that moment watching all the headlights the sun go down and it's just like hot tennessee summer and i just love music so much you know there's a way that music affected me then that it's harder to access now And it's just the first time I remember not only being present in happiness, but understanding that I need to remember this moment. (laughs) To me, that sounds so romantic and lame. It's so lame. This is the self-fulfilling prophecy of nostalgic teenage movies that you watch when you're in high school or like whatever, you read Perks of Being a Wallflower so you go try to find some tunnel to drive through there were no tunnels so I just had to settle for hanging out in the bed of a truck and <laughs> on Highway 70, what's up?
0: <laughs> um, Do you have any siblings? No. It, are you an only child? I'm
1: an only child.
0: Ah, okay, that makes sense. Um, and uh, <laughs>
1: Have a lot of time to mull about things. <laughs> yeah, no, literally, I feel like that is. people are like, you would be an only child. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense.
0: So what did you do when you were younger? And how old were you when your father brought home the guitar? And then you just sort of like, oh, you know, this is something I could play with.
1: So I was probably about 12 when he got that guitar. I would just steal it from him when he wasn't using it. And then I would teach myself like simple chords my parents had enrolled me in piano lessons before when i was maybe like nine or Mm ten and i was horrible i could not give less of a crap about moonlight sonata and i also could not read music so i would like hear songs on the radio and i would be like i want to play this i want to play piano driven adult contemporary (laughs) So I was, like, out here learning the fray and stuff. Learning guitar was so hard for me because I didn't ever learn scales. I, like, couldn't be bothered to learn even an iota of music theory. So I would just sit there and play, like, back a song up 30 seconds at a time and figure it out by (laughs) ear. It was so, it was, like, so grueling. And I'm still kicking myself for not... Having been like formally disciplined in any way, but that's what I would spend my childhood doing. I was probably like sitting in my room trying to teach myself how to play guitar, or I was like walking around the neighborhood with my friends doing something goonish,
0: like, like um, oh, <laughs> are you like just in the neighborhood I or in the woods? What <laughs> we
1: doing? No, in the like I don't know. It's just like like walk up to the gas station and get a whole bunch of slurpees so the gas station was like right by the train tracks and then you could take a train track shortcut home just like you know whatever go smoke some cigarettes by the overpass or maybe like spray paint something vaguely anti-war you know like (laughs) i don't know what do kids do
0: it's so sweet it's so like in my head it's textbook americana movies you know (laughs) it is (laughs) it really is Is there, like, a memory that you have that's kind of the most disturbing to you? It can be something small, like your parents telling you the Easter Bunny doesn't really exist, you know? Sure. Or something larger, you know, something that maybe indicates a loss of innocence for you. Oh, man. Let's see.
1: Maybe... It's not a loss of innocence, but, like, I think about this a lot. Sometimes I use it as an example of how obsessive even as a kid I used to be about this stuff. Maybe I was, like, a freshman in high school, and I remember just laying in my bed, and, like, spontaneously I just started crying because in my head I had convinced myself that I was possessed. And it was, like, (laughs) now—I know! It's, like, laughable now, but I just, like— I just had the thought, like, oh, my God, what if I'm possessed? And then started ticking off the abacus of, like, good things I've done and bad things I've done or good thoughts I'd had and bad thoughts I'd had. And then all of a sudden just, like, freaked out and was, like, (laughs) (laughs) was like telling my family, like, I think I might actually be possessed. They were just like, no, of course you're not possessed. But why did you think you were possessed? (laughs) Exactly. Why? why? It's like I I think about that so much when I need to center myself in like because you know one of the things that i don't super believe in i super believe i don't believe in any more at all is uh original sin Mm -hmm. i lived so many years of my life thinking that my predisposition was evil and that as hard as i tried i could never be good and that's just a fact that you take for granted especially in like baptist evangelical leaning Mm -hmm. iterations of christianity It's freeing to not believe that about yourself or others anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm not even trying to brag, but like a lot of heartbreaking stuff happened to me, (laughs) you know, as a young teenager. That is one of the most heartbreaking things to this day is to think that I was like a little child still. And somebody told me that it was possible to make the God of the universe hate me.
0: I think you've said something like the fact that in your teenage years you were pulled to sort of the local punk scene and that emo kind of music at the time and that aggressive punk culture was sort of catharsis for you in terms of, you know, you were yourself dealing with like challenging emotions and you were finding a way to articulate it. Did it stem from this thing about your sexuality and discovering it and trying to make sense of it and trying to reconcile that with religion
1: Obviously, that was, like, a huge stressor in my life was, you know, how invested I was by religion. But also, I don't want to retroactively apply a nobler lens as much as those huge questions were very difficult for me to deal with. I was also in relationships with I was gonna say other women, but it's like we were children still like it's it's hard for me to imagine. I'm like, why did we have any idea? Like, why did we (laughs) even try? I was dating people and getting my heart broken and feeling betrayed and being like jealous and working out all of those very complicated and nuanced situations and emotions with zero emotional tools. (laughs) So just like teenagers love to do in high school. Um, (laughs) Oh my God. I mean, I'm laughing about it now because it seems absurd, but at that time... It's like all those things were very real and very present. You feel them deeply. And I don't want to describe my experience as a queer person so much about inner turmoil that I preclude myself from being a part of the conversation that also happens in straight spaces where... Yeah. 16 year old boys and girls date each other and do stupid stuff and say hurtful things, construct really toxic relationships. That stuff also happened to me. I I wasn't just hanging out, reading my Bible, and like having a panic attack about it, you know. And I think that's largely what comes up because that's the lane that my music covers mm, but conflicts in a queer space seem to always have this second layer of that they're novelized by like a heteronormative world mm-hmm. i remember getting into like a screaming crying argument with my girlfriend when i was 15 like i couldn't even drive because i said i would not vote for gay marriage and she was like what are you kidding me Now I can look back on that and see that that is, you know, some deep internalized homophobia that I have been raised to believe so rigidly that marriage, as the church describes it, is strictly between a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. So here I am, I'm 15 years old, I'm actively dating a woman. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, but I don't think gay people should get married. That would have never been a fight that I would have had if I were in a straight relationship
0: did you actually play in a sort of punk band? Because I was uh, listening to Forrester and I was like, well, it isn't really like punk punk. No, it's no, it's not. It's like
1: Forrester is more like a little bit post-hardcore, but I'm singing. And then the Starkillers, which was the same, it was me, Matt and Creech, and a guitarist named John Prescott instead of Austin who played in Forrester. That band was, I don't even know what the start killers wanted to sound like it's it's all over the place i mean we were 16 you know we didn't have a vision we just wanted to write cool songs Mm. it's a weird sort of thing because i feel like i have so many friends from like the northeast or the west coast who have the name brand punk experience or like maybe in the Northeast people that are closer to my age it's like the name brand traditional hardcore experience Mm -hmm. but I wasn't even aware of that music because the music I was able to interact with I think was largely informed by geography and all the bands we were listening to were this weird southern metalcore with some country aspects like I I don't know uh, it was very interesting and it was very much uh, an insular scene so what was punk about it maybe it was the atmosphere
0: Forrester, this local Memphis band that Julian channels all her energies into is eventually picked up by independent US label 6131 Records On her own, Julian also records her sparse solo, Sprained Ankle. She self releases it on Bandcamp in 2014. The following year, 6131 releases it on their label and it goes on to appear on many a year end best albums list. She is soon proclaimed a critical darling and an artist to watch. You do your first album just by yourself, and I think you even thought maybe you would go back to Forrester. It becomes this huge thing. It really resonates with so many people. What was that like for you to just be like, this is what I wanted to do with my life, and now it looks like maybe I can do this?
1: It was a lot. Um, I always say, like, when I think about Sprained ankle doing as well as it did And the situation with Forrester, I always think of it as, like, some kind of Greek tragedy. Like, you get what you want, but it's somehow also not what you want. Be careful
0: what you wish for.
1: Yeah, it was hard. When we got an offer to sign with Matador, I was like, oh my god, Matador is a huge label. (laughs) It's got, like, Interpol (laughs) and, like, pavement. My very next thought was, like, this dissolves the contract that I had with 6131 to make a Forester record and I like called Matthew who now plays drums with me live and I was just like blubbering, crying. I was just so sad because I felt like it seemed a little bit ironic. Mm -hmm. It was also difficult when you are that young and you're making music that is very immediate and I had plenty of emotions to express, but then all of a sudden, I had to speak about my life and what thoughts informed them mm-hmm. and it's it's a lot to be responsible for, you know what I mean, yeah, um, and it's very scary, of course, I'd always wanted to be a musician because I love playing shows you know maybe we drive to chicago and there's like 10 kids that remember our band from the time that other chicago band played in memphis and then i'm like whoa stoked that all these people are here <laughs> but then when it's hundreds of people and they are listening and care what you have to say it's like overwhelming
0: i think i saw you at outside lands And there was such a buzz about you. I remember seeing you play the outdoor feel. It wasn't that close. And I remember thinking, I can't really hear her. What is everybody going on about? What is it about this artist that everyone loves? And then I remember looking around and I'm like, she probably wrote the song just pouring a hat out in her bedroom and now she's expected to convey this to this massive outdoor area where people are talking and drinking and just having a good time. And I'm like, how do you like try and bridge those two things in your head? Honestly, people flatter me
1: too much. I mean, I know it. I write, my songs are good, but they're like, they're not that exceptional. And I feel like sometimes I'll just like read articles. Like, I, I don't know if it's if it's motivated by like, that person has like constructed an elevated understanding of my talent or if it's because there's this confirmation bias but honestly the thing going on in my head after all of that stuff about like well i'm, I'm just another artist on this bill it's not that big of a deal the other thing going on in my brain is like how aren't people bored out of their minds it's just me up here Um, And that's why I think I went so hard, even though it was a little bit gimmicky, into the beefing up the looping situation I was working with. And by the end of 2018, it was like flying a spaceship because I was constantly so self-conscious about people not being interested in it. It depends on the attitude of the crowd. Sometimes it's a little bit humiliating. If a crowd is like apathetic about my stuff, especially at a festival, I'm like, yes, forget I'm here. I'm background noise. And I don't have to think that you're hanging on every word. That's relieving to me. But when people just like, if you're at like a club or whatever opening for someone and people just like straight up aren't stoked, I'm like, yeah, I don't know why you would be. You know, it's like, this is the thing that I got recognized for this is the music the body of work that i was recognized for after i had been working so long with my band to try to get us off the ground and it was like i realized i worked so hard for that because i loved the experience of playing live with a band and then the only way for me to have music to be my job was like to exist within the iteration of myself people actually wanted to listen to that's hard. It's not a bummer. It's just like the truth.
0: So on her next album, Turn the Lights Out, Julian sticks to the same formula, writing these slow, sad songs. The final track of this album, Claws in Your Back, is a perfect example of what some critics were labelling sad girl indie.
2: Living with demons,
0: On the last song of her debut album, critics and fans were quick to point out that it seemed to suggest suicide as a way to be closer to God. On Claws in Your Back, she attempts to course correct. Cause
2: I'd it all back. My mind. To
0: How did putting out your second album... Differ in terms of people's expectations of you and you of yourself.
1: I mean, again, it was just fast. And like, I don't know, I I experienced like a, a nanometer of what so many other people experience. You know, the like Taylor Swift's and Justin Bieber's and child stars of pop and Disney fame. And it was still mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Just having people that I didn't know personally listen to my music. (laughs) I mean, that's like, you know, when I was in a band, I pretty much knew all the people that were buying our (laughs) (laughs) records by name. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, thanks, Mike, cool. Maybe other people don't feel this way, but it is a very difficult thing for me being seen. And I had a fixation on this ideal of music as something that could be a force for good. Mm-hmm. And I also, you know, especially at that time in my life, collapsed music and worship or like service of God as one in the same, because that was how I experienced God or talked to God, whatever I imagined that to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had more resources and attention than i had ever had in my life i think i put this expectation on myself you know like after reading so many articles of people saying really nice things about sprained ankle Mm -hmm. i don't know the feeling was like gosh i better make a masterpiece and i know that sophomore albums are like notoriously challenging for artists but i was just so young And I think it was like twofold. It's like I I wanted to use my platform now to promote something good or truly meaningful in this world Mm -hmm. because that I decided was my purpose was to, you know, spread the word, not that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, but that there's hope and love and forgiveness for everybody. I still want to do that, but I just now don't have it riding on me that, like, I'm the sole ambassador of that information (laughs) to the world for some reason. But also, I finally, after years of cutting newspaper clippings of my band and, like, mailing them to labels and blogs and stuff and having no one care, like, Mm -hmm. I finally, even if it was alone, had people engaging with my art and it felt like i needed to do something to establish my right to be there like my right to have a seat at the table it was it's like a lot of pressure it was all self constructed for me it's like man i really let my own obsessive fears get in the way of making music just for the sake of making music which isn't to say i like don't like the album or anything it's just you know, I was in a very different headspace when I wrote it.
0: Yeah. And and also the fact that then you had a relapse mm-hmm. with addiction, it's sort of like there was a lot going on there. You had put yourself out there, you had the pressure of the follow-up album. So in a lot of ways, you continued to excavate yourself as well and put yourself up there. And sometimes people retreat right? Mm -hmm. But hearing you talk, it's like you have a personal ministry that this is what you want to do. So I'm going to keep at it. I mean, like, you know, people who are going through what you're going through, be it a queer identity thing, be it a religion thing, Mm -hmm. be it it they're in a dark place for all kinds of other reasons. And they find that your music is helpful. Sometimes the music is something that makes you stay, Mm -hmm. but it took its toll on you. You said in an interview that You Mm -hmm. noticed it and people around you had noticed. Mm. And how hard was it for you to then go, oh, shucks, now I have to stop this thing that I love?
1: Yeah. I mean, if I'm being as candid about it as I feel comfortable, it was my choice, but it was, I didn't really have any other choice by the time it was my choice, Um. And that's because, I don't know, I'm like most human beings, I I get used to a thing and then it's hard for me to change. I had been touring since I was like 16 and I had been touring to make a living for three, four years at that point. So it was the place where I was competent. It was the place where my job and all the guilt that comes with my job being the ephemeral realm of ideas and like it's my job i guess to like sift through emotions and write songs about it that's at least that's what i do to earn money to pay to live (laughs) so Mm. that was the one place where i felt like there was something tangible and valuable to what i did that i could actually see It's really difficult for me to feel like there's value in my work by looking at Spotify data. Also, it's like I had lived my life for several years at that point in constant motion. And I feared what would happen if I removed the inertia of touring, of having this ever-present task. And if I had to just like sit alone in a
0: house with myself. You can imagine how difficult a decision it was But in light of her relapse, she had to ask herself why she was still doing this. What made her happy? And she says rather than stay in the stasis of tour, not evolving and always regurgitating the same things in interviews, she knew it was necessary to step away. Faith Healer, the first single of Little Oblivions, Julian sings about withdrawal, about missing the high, and wanting it so badly that in that moment, she'll believe any charlatan. Equating a faith healer to the snake oil dealer suggests that religion has also been a kind of drug for her. The cover of the album is an interesting tableau offering more clues. It features a lone wolf, a lit cigarette, and curiously an abacus, all surrounding a portrait of Julian.
1: Maybe this is me over-intellectualizing it, but I think portraiture is actually more accurate to the way that we encounter and assess and evaluate people anyway it really does just kind of lay bare how sensitive we are to how other people appear to us or the perspective that we have or how patient we are with rendering them how much we understand about you know their depth and and what we bring to project on them the painter that we commissioned to do this wiley put the wolf in there and I was like, oh my goodness, that's a great idea because we let him hear the record in order to like draw some inspiration from the subject matter. But the abacus I put in there because it's such a symbolic object for me. I had never seen a physical abacus and we just randomly have one in our house. But I think about that concept all the time of constantly shifting around values in your head and that's very much what this record is about kind of weighing and assessing
0: things at every turn now that you're saying that I'm also thinking about the commodifying of artworks you know it's like abacus uh, we use it to like count right to count yes like yeah you know it's like now you're a artist of some repute and it's like there's more pressure to like made the bean counter's happier and sell more records. Wow.
1: Yes. Seriously. And that's man that's another thing it's like it's also really s- bizarrely unaffecting. I have trouble with that with feeling records sold or like streams that come up in like the monthly report of like how my music is doing in the world. Uh it's it's super difficult to feel gratified by those things, but also it's like I don't know. Maybe that is a blessing in some way because not feeling gratified by them in the first place maybe makes it easier not to like assign my worth to how well my art is being commodified.
0: So the wolf, what does it mean for you? He already put it in there. Did you go, okay, this makes sense because for me, this is what it means.
1: Oh my gosh. Am I about to be a nerd and talk about how I love wolves? (laughs)
0: Okay, I
1: just, okay. I love them too. Okay, I (laughs) used my roommate's Disney Plus (laughs) just so that I could watch this wolf documentary that's on, like, National Geographic, and I found myself unusually moved. You know, of course, I hadn't seen this wolf documentary when, and it wasn't even my idea to put the wolf in the painting, but it's like, man, a a wolf, like, it's just making me think of it, like, the more we understand something, the more we can contextualize it. So, Mm I see wolves, and even in my own music, wolves in, in folktales and in literature are used to symbolize something that's evil it's, or like a darkness or a threat. Wolves are always like portrayed in poetry or uh, literature is like lurking. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're always the
0: bad guys.
1: Always the bad guy. And why are they evil, though? That It's like the more you understand about a creature the more you contextualize its behavior inside of its habitat and I think you can do that with humans too when you learn more when you spend time in depth like or you could do that with emotional wounds you know I'm afraid of this thing it haunts me it feels like it's always hanging over me whatever if, if your wolf is like addiction or um like trauma but then when you look at it and you observe it and understand the space it takes up in like the biome of your mind it becomes less scary and you can actually learn from it
0: in the song zip tie she reflects on this christ-like morality that she's been guilty of in the past of the word zip tie is intentional. Written in the aftermath of George Floyd, she wanted to make the connection between zip ties around the hands of protesters and Jesus on the cross. And to me, she makes a larger comment about religion and how far it's strayed from the basic tenet that God is love. After growing up Catholic and attending church for most of my life, I tell Julian how I've had a crisis of faith since coming to America and seeing how the right had politicized religion.
1: I can relate to the last four years being a big both personally and witnessing how religion is politicized and weaponized. It's been the same for me. That's been a big root of a lot of my religious like entropy, but god i'm I'm hearing you kind of talk about the transition between being like nominally or self proclaimed. A part of a specific religion and faith tradition and defending it and being like i'm catholic or whatever i'm uh, i believe in god or i believe i'm like some sort of judeo-christian at all i felt that way for a really long time too and i think i did have such a strong relationship with church because it was so deeply rooted in community for me but i didn't know Like, you're right. Like, in America, I feel like it's not that religion is pervasive in everything. It's that, like, the politicized version of religion is – or, like, religion is used kind of to prop up several different elements of our society. Mm. And so it's everywhere. I wonder if I wouldn't have been religious had I not been at a really, really vulnerable place just with things that were going on with my family and in my own personal life when I was like a young teenager and finding a community of people that were like a little bit older than me that were in this youth group attached to some church that my friend went to. I literally showed up on the first day and I was like, Well, if God's real, then why is there war? This is honestly like as I think about it, I understand how much it was just a longing for connection that was just like framed in a faith tradition. Because the whole reason why I kept going back was because there was this woman there that was actually engaging in a conversation with me. And I just like didn't have a ton of older people that would do that. Like entertain my doubts and discuss them frankly and take me seriously. And that was what was also happening with the musicians. I'm maybe 13, 14. They're in their early 20s. They're like playing Radiohead at youth group. And I'm so desperately seeking connection with people and guidance and ultimately asylum from like what's happening in my own life. And I found that through the church. And then I feel like because the ideology of American evangelical values is so woven in with that, I didn't want to relinquish that belonging that I had found. You know, the more I reflect on it now as it relates to my queerness is like I had so many friends that came out and were immediately ostracized or banished or shunned by their parents or their religious communities. First of all, I was fortunate enough for that to not happen to me. And second of all, I think as a queer person and as someone who has felt othered or marginalized from a completely male music scene, (laughs) it was like, I didn't want to relinquish that Belonging. That's what made me so obsessed for such a long time with trying to reconcile questions of queerness with specifically the Christian faith tradition. Because I think that there was something that I wanted to prove within the context of religion to the people within that religion. Mm. It was just like something that was so, so important to me, and it still is. I don't know if I can ever fully be rid of it. Like, I. I don't know if with you, like even though, Mm -hmm. you know, things have like shifted your perspective, I'm still so reluctant to dismiss the idea of God instead of just change my idea about what the word God means.
0: I think it's a dialogue. So, you know, it changes as your life changes. And people say when you're old, there's lots of old people in churches, people find God again just in case they want to hedge their bets. Yeah, just, just get that fire insurance,
1: as my old pastor would call it. But um, actually, that's so interesting because if I'm being honest, like when I stopped believing in God the particular way that I had believed in god for my whole life since i was a baby when i let go of those things it was devastating it was devastating and i like talking to people who maybe aren't as attached to religion or were like raised in a secular household i feel like it's difficult to explain why a crisis of faith would make me have like a complete mental breakdown Mm. and i think it was so difficult because i kept praying and i used to wake up Most mornings, and just like read my Bible front to back, like it was a book, (laughs) or like read some theologian's sermons. And I kept doing that past the point where my doubt had sort of tipped the scales into this probably doesn't matter land. I kept doing it because the habit was still there. I would have given anything at that time in my life to be able to snap my fingers and like reset my belief button. Now I find myself like valuing prayer. Mm. When I sit down at the end of the day and I think about the things that I'm so grateful for, I have that conversation with myself where I try to remind myself of those things and they help me keep in perspective that everything isn't horrible. But, you know, and the converse, like where I would spend my time maybe petitioning God for forgiveness for some sin I had committed that day. Well, now when I think about the things I did wrong, I think about sin in the context of, was I selfish today? Maybe I was rude to my roommate or my partner, or maybe I wasn't as comforting as I could have been. And then I don't have to fear punishment from anybody but anybody at all I'm just accountable to myself about it and so it's like prayer has taken on this completely different self-reflective space for me that I actually quite value and it feels good to like come back around and not be so wounded by the loss of thinking that that was literal
0: after years of sobriety Julian had built this image of herself as a straight-edge clean living person but when you draw this black and white line, then fail, it's hard to come back from it. With the song Hardline, Julian sifts through these complicated emotions of feeling like an imposter. Knocked out on a weekend, would you hit me this hard if I were a boy? What did you mean when you wrote it? Who were you talking to? And why are you so hard on yourself?
1: It's not even that I'm hard on myself in my estimation. It's just that I'm trying to be accountable mm. and I can hold to contradictory certainties at once, because that's kind of what being a human is all about. But I I do believe that everybody is worthy of forgiveness and love. But I also believe that I have done some extremely hurtful things in my life. And for me to, to go up into an interview and to project only this sensitive, wounded, healing person and not also represent the ways in which i have failed myself and other people mm. as an artist i feel like there's a lot that goes into the romanticization and how we collapse artist and artwork and this has happened to me you know and like in the way we portray people in a very romantic light it's just about a physical altercation that i was in with another queer person mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of that meme that's like the freeze frame. And it's like, yep, that's me. Bet you're wondering how I got here. (laughs) Just getting my ass kicked. That song is the backstory on bet you're wondering how I got here. Um, And it's through a lot of mistakes. I wrote that because being like a person in a marginalized demographic of queerness, you know, I'm straight passing it. I've always felt like there is this other looming context to violence, to physical violence, when it happens between queer people, because so much violence is enacted on the queer body throughout our childhood, being bullied or humiliated or physically harmed in ways that are targeted for your queerness. And it makes me think of the violence that I have been party to in a really sad way again it's like you know what what caused this in my psyche like obviously there's the reason why we got into a physical fight <laughs> and then there's if you zoom out there's the reason why i even think of physical violence as a possible solution to a problem. There's the way that I've been socialized or maybe the way that I've performed around a disproportionately male music scene to be tough because nobody would take me seriously or because maybe I feared violence or I feared being targeted as a queer person because I was. Basically, that line is just like, what if I were a boy? What if this wasn't happening between two queer women and I didn't have to work so hard to overcompensate or try to defend myself against this imagined threat that I now like graft onto everybody that I see. You know, like, would I still be in this fight? Would I still be in this situation? What is it about my life that got me here?
0: Sometimes when you just get slapped on with queer religious upbringing, straight up Indian musician, right? Uh, Addiction, substance (laughs) abuse. And and that's all you are. You're just like a label and people start off whatever story, which is that. And it's like, it's so limiting. And also, it's like, you know, when I first like read all that stuff, I just had this completely different picture in my mind, which I'm sure people have and then they speak to you and they're like, okay, they need to adjust, uh, which is her parents were probably mean to her. They were probably like strict religious people living out in Tennessee. You paint like the worst possible picture. Sure then that's how you get the steps to be somebody who at such a young age has addiction. And then the fact that you're queer and you're in this binary of religion. Sure. But then you're living in a world where there's a schism where you look around you and you're like, no, but I, I don't feel it. Yeah, way. Yeah. I, it's like, how do you negotiate all that?
1: Um, well, it's crazy. Like, you know, what you're saying about having... qualifiers that become applied to you all the time and then comprise your entire being for whatever the world cares to investigate Mm -hmm. it's really weird and also what you're saying about having this misconception that it was like you know maybe i grew up in this oppressively religious household and in this like one certain context i don't know i i regret sometimes having (sighs) had so much to say (laughs) really early in my career about god and religion because i think i was a being a little bit flippant and not taking into consideration the history of queerness that i hadn't been exposed to right like i grew up in an incredibly heteronormative scene in an incredibly heteronormative cultural context i didn't have a lot of gay friends and what you know gay queer friends I had were kind of in my same boat where like all that we knew about queerness was what had been parroted back to us through like heteronormative media's representation of queer people so I feel like in that one aspect like I had not actually done enough reconciling myself not with like the ideas in scripture or the ideas of religion but with the institution like i hadn't addressed the all of the harm that it had incurred like not only on me psychologically but on so many people psychologically emotionally and physically it's a really difficult thing to navigate and it's like i still find myself in conversations like these even though i have a radically different conceptualization of god it's an element of my personality that got distilled into, you know, how I'm imagined by the people who read the articles that I'm in or the people that listen to my music. And sometimes I regret how I've handled that in the past, like how I've, you know, maybe been like a more zealous advocate for Christianity, full stop. But I think these conversations are still Useful. You're asking me, like, growing up religious, like, how do you reconcile that? Like, oh, man, I've been doing that work for my entire life. So Jesus, can you help me?
0: Julian's lyrics are as raw as ever. But on this album, it's juxtaposed with the grandest sonics of a fuller sounding band. And this serves her well. This third album is sonically just lush. Mm. But um, how did you decide to have like this bigger sound? Was it like something that you said, I just want to do something different? Or this music requires it? Or my brain requires it?
1: I think maybe a little bit of all of that. I think playing in... Boy genius was a big part of it. At first, maybe I was like, "Yeah, this was just sort of a catalyst for a thing that I already wanted to do." I had been releasing seven inches or like one-off singles that had drums in them because I I wanted to move back towards that world, but I had so much trepidation about it. And I made this band with Lucy and Phoebe, and we toured it, and it was the happiest moment of the show every night when. My set was over and I could go play the Boy Genius set Mm. because it wasn't so like lonely. It was all of us singing together and making music together. And I was like, oh wow, like I want to have a reason to make music in this way again. I was pretty much like, when I went back to school, I needed something to do, but I also wanted to have a bachelor's because I didn't know if music was going to be able to work out or if I had just torched everything so bad that my label wouldn't want to work with me or my team wouldn't want to work with me or, you know, my friends wouldn't want to play with me or make a record. Mm -hmm. So, but then I found, you know, I'm going to school and I'm really sitting with the fact that maybe music isn't what I do for a living anymore. But how is it then that I'm still writing songs? And like, how is it then I'm still making
0: music? I have to admit that at the start, I wasn't a big fan of Julian's music. The lack of instrumentation and often dwelling on things like suicide felt indulgent. But she is one of the most open-hearted guests to come on the podcast. And now knowing how deeply she considers the things she writes about in her music, it's made me a fan. It's like her metaphor of the wolf. Once you look at something closer and understand it, you can come to love it. With all the changes she's been through in the last few years, I wondered if Julian's relationship to music had changed.
1: Well, now that I've sort of destabilized my idea of God as the object of my service and worship, there's a power vacuum in my soul. (laughs) Um, What do you worship then if... There's no floating distant God to mentally transmit your prayers to. What do you give yourself to? And I think that the object of my worship is human beings and communicating and trying to better understand. And trying to be better understood myself for who I am so that others can maybe understand themselves better. And the mode of that pursuit is music. It's the most important thing in my life, you know. So maybe not a lot has changed
0: You've been listening to Under the Radar Podcast featuring Julian Baker. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfin. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari. Media and graphic design by Jenny Woodward. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis Hahn. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time.